Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. I'm Ashley Betteridge. On December 11, we held the Australian launch of our joint report with Papua New Guinea's National Research Institute, titled A Lost Decade, Service Delivery and Reforms in Papua New Guinea, 2002-2012. to The report was launched by His Excellency Charles Lapani and Dr Thomas Webster of NRI. You can download the full report or a summary on our website, devpolicy.anu.edu.au. Hello everybody. What a great crowd. How fantastic to see you all today. Um, my name is Margaret Cullen. I'm a visiting fellow at the Development Policy Centre at ANU and it's my pleasure to welcome you all here today. I'd like to start by acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and to pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. When the Development Policy Centre was established in September 2010, one of its three key areas of focus was the development of Papua New Guinea and the Pacific Islands region. I've had the pleasure of being a visiting fellow at the centre for the past four years, and I've witnessed firsthand the very high priority that the centre's director, Stephen House, has accorded its work on Papua New Guinea. And the Promoting Effective Public Expenditure Project, PEPE, has pride of place in that work, and rightly so, as you will see from today's presentations. We have four speakers today. Uh, the first is Matt Kimberley. Matt is the Assistant Secretary. I have to read this out because it's a new title. Papua New Guinea Development and Solomon Islands Branch in the Pacific Division of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Um, prior to taking on that position, Matt's also been posted by Aussie Overseas in Indonesia and Afghanistan and led Australia's work on fragile states policy. The next spe speaker who will launch this report is His Excellency Charles Lapani, the High Commissioner of Papua New Guinea. Um, Charles has a very distinguished career. He's been High Commissioner in Australia since 2005. Um, some of his earlier duties which are highly relevant to um, the report that we're going to discuss today is in the early days post-independence, Charles was director of the PNG National Planning Office. Um, he's also been the managing director of PNG Mineral Resources Development Company and ambassador to the European Union. Uh, following the launch of the report, we'll have two presentations on the report. From one from Stephen Howes, the Director of the Development Policy Centre, and one from Thomas Webster, who's the Director of the National Research Institute in Papua New Guinea. So I'd like you to welcome all of these speakers. Uh, today's event is going to run until 2 o'clock. We've allowed about 30 to 40 minutes for questions and answers at the end of the presentations, so you'll have ample time then to seek clarification or elaboration of any aspects of the report that you'd like to talk about. So now I'd like to invite Matt Kimberley to start the proceedings. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Margaret. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, and just uh, from the outset, thanks for the opportunity, but... Um, well, I'm very happy to be doing this. Our Parliamentary Secretary, Brett Mason, had uh, originally invited but was not able to make it um, because he has other uh, commitments in Queensland uh, today. 
But um, to kick off, um, excellently, Charles Lapani, uh, Professor Howes, and distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, um, Dr Webster, thank you very much for the opportunity to participate in the launch. Um, let me start by acknowledging the importance for us of the partnership between the National Research Institute of PNG and the Australian National University. Um, the ANU, uh, including the very important work uh, that the Crawford School and Development Policy Centre and NRI have undertaken, has much to offer to the level of quality and, uh, and policy debate around social and economic issues in PNG. Um, and as you know, the report was we're considering today, as Margaret said, is the latest uh, undertaken under the Promoting Effective Public Expenditure Project. Uh, the project has involved the NRI and the Development Policy uh, Centre over the last few years, and the Australian Government's been very pleased to support this work and of what's been emerging from that project. I'm not going to talk in detail about the report. It'll be formally launched by my more uh, esteemed colleagues sitting at the table. But I'd like to offer a few thoughts from our side um, on the outcomes. I think the first is that, crucially, the study gives us some long-term uh, data on service delivery in eight different locations in PNG. And to the casual observer, this might seem like a finer, fairly minor achievement. It is not. Um, why? Unfortunately, good data on service delivery is remarkably hard to come by in PNG and elsewhere, so we very much welcome this work. The absence of good data uh, for commentators and policymakers alike means that they tend to rely on hearsay, anecdotes and limited personal experience when talking about service delivery and making decisions about interventions in there. Um, and when we rely on weak foundations of knowledge, there can be no genuine analysis and no meaningful debate as to the merits of what we're proposing. Better data leads to better analysis better policy and more substantive reforms. The report reflects on the impacts of past and current practices and gives us credible information on how to make some future policy choices, not just, not just for PNG government, but also for ourselves as a key donor. We're very interested to note, and reassured I might add, that the findings confirm the policy approach that the Australian government's taken over the last few years regarding the Christian health services in PNG. The studies identified the need to expand existing partnerships with the church education and health service providers. And in 2011, our partnership with Health Report also identified the significant inequity in Christian health services staffing and operational funding in Papua New Guinea. And in 2013, a team concluded that a further 209 health facilities and 375 additional staff were justified. And we've worked very closely and carefully with PNG government to influence a multi-million dollar increases to Christian health services through their budget in both 2014 and 15. The study is clearly multidimensional and the information has been collected using a very broad data set, standardised questions and analysed very rigorously, which we again very much welcome. And importantly, it's also collected data on women and girls' access to services. The studies identified dramatic differences between the performance of sectors, provinces across PNG and clearly points to the influence of adequate and predictable financing and effective supervision to achieve positive outcomes. It's put forward a proposition that PNG may well have lost a decade of development, and this is despite a period of strong economic growth and the PNG's government to move substantially to improve access to services. It's important that, collectively, we take the lessons of the past decade on board and ensure that the next decade is one of gains for all of Papua New Guineans. An assessment of PNG's aid program earlier this year affirmed that Australia will continue to invest in health, education, infrastructure and law and justice but our investments will support PNG government to take on greater sovereign responsibility for meeting the needs in these sectors. This will include strengthening PNG's health and education systems. We'll continue to increase our support for strong, 
robust economic growth and planning decisions that can ensure effective and efficient delivery of service. We want to support PNG government to engage more fully in the private sector and with non-government actors alike. And we certainly hope that the PNG government and its development partners will view the report as a comprehensive analysis that can inform practical and immediate decision-making around the policy choices before it. Let me finish with a word of appreciation for the role of academia and research. We're very committed to innovation within the A program. Useful information, though, is reliant on good understanding of what's been happened before and what can be tried in the future. And you, many of the people in this room in academia, have a central role in generating the evidence that can make this happen. It is vital in facilitating greater collaboration between government, civil society and the private sector to promote the use of applied research to real-world issues. And I'd like to thank those involved in this report. You're to be congratulated. Uh, it's very important work. And the next step for all of us is to translate this into better services for the people of Papua New Guinea. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Uh, I'd now like to invite um, His Excellency Charles Lapani to speak. I wish to first of all um, acknowledge and thank all who have contributed to this emerging but very significant study <clears throat> to bring to the fore some insight into the yawning gap or chasm of policy and politics on the one hand in Papua New Guinea and the will and capacity to spend PNG's increasing wealth in the priorities that will bring about qualitative changes in the lives of our people, particularly the rural majority. I acknowledge the many people who have reviewed the findings of the study, the researchers, the editors, and so many others. But credit must go in the main to the two institutions responsible for pursuing this worthy course, the Development Policy Center of Crawford School of Public Policy at ANU, and the National Research Institute of Papua New Guinea. I pay tribute to the drivers of this study, the heads of National Research Institute and the Development Policy Center, Doctors, Dr. Thomas Webster and Professor Stephen House, and your colleagues, Andrew Ash Anton Marco, Anthony Swan, Grant Wilson, and Colin Wilshire. I also wish to acknowledge our good friends, the Australians, uh, under their development assistance program that have in the past carried the funding at 80 to 20 percent ratio of our priorities, particularly in health and education. I know that because we did the review as part of the team that did the review. Today this proportion is being rebalanced, but I note the study made reference to adequacy of supply of textbooks in schools as a key uh, benchmark. A very generous help from our Australian friends whose assistance is meant to fund capital works or capital projects only and not recurrent items such as supply of textbooks. Before I formally launch the study, I seek your indulgence to make some passing remarks as to how timely and significant this study is for Papua New Guinea. It comes at a time 
When we are at the cusp of very significant economic transformation, I'm sure you're all very sick of that, those, uh, those words. But that transformation, driven by the benefit flows of LNG enterprise and the mining projects and ventures, cannot and should not be measured only by the impressive GDP annual rates, growth rates, uh, projected to be around 16% next year, and the seemingly ex exponential annual budget sizes, including next year's 15 billion kina, recently approved by our parliament. I consider these studies' findings very critical, and more importantly, our Papua New Guinea government should allocate more resources and to support the call by the study team for this project not only to continue but to compress the timing from 10 years, 10 yearly to 5 yearly project cycles. Further, the project should be expanded to include the remaining three other priorities sectors in infrastructure, law and justice and administration. <laughs> the prophetic tome and tome, the last, the last decade of this study should be taken as a clarion call to our government that the impressive economic indicators that can only find true and beneficial meaning by our people if we know how the expenditure side of the budgets and the benefits of the national product or what we, our economy produces as measured by our GDPs are actually benefiting our people, majority of our people uh, in, in the country. Here lies the contribution that has and can continue to be made by the study's findings and hopefully its successor studies. I am impressed that the study has identified four performance indicators to measure effectiveness of government implementation efforts in the two sectors of the five of the original basic priority sectors that have consistently marked the course of our development since independence. They are finance, supervision, agency, and workforce, and the role they play, measuring comparatively and relatively the successes internally in the two priority sectors that have been studied, and between, uh, internally and between the two sectors. I must conclude by urging all Papua New Guinea leaders, both politicians and public servants, and Papua New Guineans genuinely concerned for the future prosperity of the country to carry this study and its successor studies around as development bibles. I have pleasure in launching the last decade, a lost decade, and may grow and create prosperity for Papua New Guinea. Thank you. Okay, well, uh, good afternoon, everyone. It's great to see so many people here. Uh, thank you very much, Matt, for your uh, kind words, and uh, to the Australian Aid Program for their you are our sponsor, and we couldn't have done this without you. Uh, thank you, Charles, uh, for your support, uh, your words today, but also your support uh, and encouragement throughout this uh, throughout this project. It's uh, been much appreciated, and of course, uh, thank you to uh, my collaborators. Uh, thank you, Thomas, for coming here to share this event with us, and to, we look forward to your contribution 
thank you to the other team members and uh, many others I see around the room who one way or another have uh, participated in, in the project. Uh, it's been a two-year journey. Uh, we did the initial surveys uh, in uh, around October, starting October uh, through to November, finishing early December 2012. And those are some of our survey teams. You know, we did, we, we travelled by boat uh, on the open sea and by river, and we, we, we trekked by foot uh, to get to some very remote schools and health clinics uh, in order to be representative. And from that until to this report uh, has been a, uh, a two-year journey. I won't go through all the details, but I guess what I'll try to emphasize is that we've tried to do this as a consultative open process, and we've had consultations uh, before the survey. We, we went back to the provinces with our initial results. We discussed in Moresby with individual departments and through our uh, half-yearly budget for uh, you know, the results as they came out. And uh, while this report's an important milestone, we certainly don't see it uh, as the end of the journey. And uh, you know, we're happy that our partnership with NRI is continuing, indeed uh, broadening. And uh, as you'll see, there are, this, this report gives us some answers, but also asks some questions that we want to, we want to take forward. Uh, the survey itself uh, covered eight provinces, uh, two in each of the uh, four geographical regions of uh, Papua New Guinea, and uh, is broadly designed to be nationally representative. Uh, you can see here the spread of the schools. Uh, the health clinics, uh, I'll come to in a minute, but more broadly followed the location of the schools. And it's important to note we weren't starting from scratch. Right? We were building on the 2002 uh, what was called the PESD, uh, Public Expenditure Service Delivery Survey, which the NRI you know, also undertook uh, this time, or that time, in collaboration with the World Bank. And we thought, you know, rather than starting again, we'd build on that survey. And so we went back to the same provinces, the same districts, and wherever possible, the same schools and health clinics as in 2002. Uh, why? Uh, because uh, it made it more interesting. And because in a country as diverse as Papua New Guinea, your chances of getting a good comparison are much higher if you go back to the same provinces, the same districts, the same clinics. It wasn't always possible. In some cases, areas were closed, uh, facilities were closed, uh, there were problems of accessibility. Uh, and uh, the orange bars show the, the ones that were new. So the blue ones will repeat, the orange were new. It's a large portion of health, because in health we, just, we, we want to increase the number of health clinics. So we had to survey more. Uh, we discuss in some length in Chapter 2 of the report the issues around uh, comparability, uh, and you'll just have to take it from me that, um, you know, broadly speaking, these are, I think, very comparable. Not perfect, but very com two very comparable and uh, trusted um, sources of data. Um, I'm going to focus on the results. Uh, we, we, we had altogether 1,276 interviews, a lot of interviews of uh, head teachers, uh, officers in charge of health clinics, other teachers, community users, parents, uh, board of management representatives, uh, and then also at the district and uh, provincial uh, level. Uh, I'm not going to go in this presentation into details of uh, statistical significance. Um, I'll, I'll talk broadly uh, around that, but, but all the details are in the report. It is a very rich data set. I think even the report only gives a partial representation of the data in my uh, talk wouldn't necessarily be much more selective. I'm going to start with education and then go on to health and then bring it together with some uh, common explanations 
um, and, uh, and lessons learnt. Uh, so in education, um, we first of all, uh, I mean, let me say at the outset, it's important to recognize the title is a lost decade question mark, and not everything is negative, and let's start on the positive. Note, we saw strong growth in enrolments over the decade. You know, we had two surveys, but for many variables, uh, we collected data on two years. So in some cases, we have up to four years of data. And you can, if you look at the average primary school, you can see the enrolments between 2001 and 2012 were almost doubled. Uh, there were big increases when free education was introduced. It was introduced in 2002, then abolished, and then reintroduced in 2011. So that kind of gave a spurt to the growth of enrolments on top of the, the normal growth uh, over, over the decade. Uh, that particularly benefited girls. So if you look here, there are not only twice as many kids at school, but the share of girls has gone from, it used to be one girl for two boys, to almost uh, one to one. So a big shift towards uh, gender parity. Um, it's not all good news, and we do find attendance rates have gone down. And we uh, suspect that's because now there is a big incentive to inflate your enrolment numbers, because you get this big subsidy payment based on the number of kids you report as enrolled. Uh, so it, it is a source for uh, concern. But if you ask the community, you can see that more community representatives think that children are going to school. So overall, uh, this is, uh, it's good news on school uh, attendance. And remembering that this is against the background of a rapid population growth. So just to keep up with population growth itself is a challenge. But in PNG, schools have gone. And these are primary schools, let me just uh, say that. They've gone beyond that. So more kids at school. Schools are also bigger. So on average, they have about one and a half more classrooms. Uh, they have more, one and a half more teacher positions, but almost twice as many teachers. So more positions are filled. More teachers are actually... Uh, teaching, uh, and they've got more houses uh, to live in. That's very important in rural areas, although there's still a shortage compared to the number of teachers. Schools are not only bigger, they're also generally better. The classrooms are more likely to be made of permanent materials. Uh, they're going to be better equipped with uh, table and chair. Their schools are more likely to have drinking water the whole year round. You know, some of the progress uh, is a little slow. We've got enough female toilets, right? That's hardly an increase uh, at all. But in general, um, there's, uh, the progress is, in, progress is being made. Our schools are not only bigger, but better. Uh, it's not all good news, and I guess the one uh, problem that comes up across both sectors is a you know, problem of maintenance. So over the 10-year period, virtually identical, you know, it's one-third of classrooms and teacher houses just need to be rebuilt. Right? And that's because you know, so many need maintenance, and that maintenance isn't done, therefore they fall from the orange... Uh, into the blue category. Although schools are bigger, they haven't been able to keep up with the surge in enrolments. And so we have more students uh, per classroom. And just to take an example, if you look at grade three, uh, by the eight provinces that we've looked at, you know, if you take golf, it's an average of 80 uh, per class. So that's clearly uh, unsatisfactory. In terms of teachers, uh, overall a uh, positive picture. Uh, absenteeism is, hasn't increased and is relatively low. And of course some absenteeism is always going to be there because teachers are sick, they're on leave, or they're, they're going to get their pay. The problem of ghost teachers seems to have been effectively dealt with. 2002 identified you know, some 15% of teachers that were on the payroll who couldn't be found. Uh, but that, that, had, uh, that had gone by the time 2012. 
Likewise, in 2002, half the teachers felt they weren't being paid at the proper grade. Uh, that problem had been, more effect had been effectively dealt with. Uh, there's a big change in the gender composition of the workforce. The number of female teachers has gone up from about a quarter. Portion has gone up from about a quarter to a half. Right? That's very positive in itself, but it also means we're going to get more head teachers being female because they come through the uh, teaching workforce. In terms of performance, though, whether teachers are usually on time, whether they're usually teaching, uh, we don't see uh, any improvement. Uh, I'll talk more when we go to try to explain these results, but you know, some initial uh, findings, what might lie behind a generally positive improvement. Uh, schools are fairly well uh, supervised. You know, most schools get at least one visit a year from what's called the standard officer or the school uh, inspector. And uh, in general, they check records, uh, submit reports, and uh, in, in about half the cases, actually observe classroom behaviour. It's also strong community oversight. You know, every school has a board of management, and that is not only on paper, the board of management actually meets. And they've been meeting for the last decade, right, at four times a year. Uh, they have membership of uh, eight to nine. And uh, not only the uh, board of management, nearly all the schools have a... Um, Parent Citizens Committee. That's more like a, you know, a body for parent feedback. And again, they tend to be active with uh, three to four meetings a year. And one of the interesting responses we got uh, was over here. You know, we, we asked head teachers who has the most say over these school subsidy payments that schools get from government. And uh, the number saying that it was a board of management has gone up from just a half to you know, two-thirds. So these boards of management, you know, so they don't just exist on paper. They meet and they actually exert... Uh, influence. Uh, and then that's governance. Finances have really been transformed. So schools are much better off than they were a decade ago. Uh, today, per revenue, uh, schools get almost 350 keener per student. Right? This is from all sources. So the yes, school fees have uh, reduced and now been phased out, but that's been more compensated for by the school subsidy payments. And so schools get more per student and then they got many more students. So the average school used to get 30... This is uh, all your costs, right, apart from salaries, non-salary costs. Used to be 35,000 keener in, in today's prices, and uh, now it's 90, almost 90,000. So it's uh, more than doubled. Uh, schools are much better off than they were. So I'll just uh, pause there before I go to health and just say, you know, clearly for schools, it wasn't a lost decade. Right? This was a decade of progress. You know, we're not saying that there... Well, there, there are clearly problems with quality. And we know there were probably mistakes made in terms of curriculum reform. And uh, we didn't go and test students. So we're not speaking directly to quality. But, of course, every developing country struggles with the quality of their primary school education. The first challenge is to get kids into school and to provide them with school buildings and school teachers. And on that, uh, the, the education sector has definitely made... Made progress, and I think this is very important. It shows that development progress is possible in PNG. You know, PNG is able to deliver large-scale services uh, to its people through a bureaucratic machinery. It's not the case that uh, because of the big man culture or any other reason that you know we should give up on all that and simply give all the funds to the MPs. Right? This is being done through a, a, a traditional mode of development, and uh, it's not by any means perfect, but it does show. Progress. All right, health. Health shows a very uh, different uh, picture and uh, uh, definitely much more worrying. 
We don't have as much data, uh, comparative data, uh, on health because the main focus of the 2002 survey were schools. And they only, fo they only surveyed a smaller number of health centres and with a, a much shorter questionnaire. So we've got more health centres, more questions. So uh, it'll be better for the next survey. But we do have a few basic comparisons over time, and uh, they're pretty worrying. We break them up. You know, health, health clinics are quite variable, much more variable than schools, right? From mini hospitals right through to very tiny aid posts. But however you cut it, uh, you don't see an increase in the number of patients. Right? This decrease is not statistically significant, but it's certainly not an increase. And if you put that against the context of 30% population growth over this period, right, you really see uh, Papua New Guinea's population uh, voting with its feet and expressing a lack of confidence uh, in the primary health care system. Right? Fewer patients are going, uh, not because uh, they're healthier, right? but because... Um, they don't think they're going to get services that, uh, that meet their needs. Uh, why is that? Well, it's difficult to come to a definitive answer, but we can pick up some clues. If we look at uh, the uh, basic drug and medical supply availability, uh, we can see no real areas of improvement, and we can see areas of worsening. So you, know, you, you, you may not find uh, what you need uh, if, you, if you visit. If we look at staff... Uh, we see no increase. We see an increase, small increase in the number of positions, but not in those working uh, or those who turn up, who actually turn up to work. And indeed, we find some troubling staff indicators. Right? We find that more than half the staff, or just about half, think they're not being paid at grade. And we find three quarters saying they use their own pay to help deliver the services. And while that's something very noble and generous on the one hand, it's also you know, it's disturbing that they, they, they're that desperate, that they have to use their own pay to keep things going. And if you just look at this indicator, we ask the officers in charge how long they've been there, it's almost 10 years. Right? Whereas for a head teacher, it's about three years before they move on. So here there's no one to replace them. Right? The, the health sector workforce is stagnating. People stay in position for a very long time. Right? The simple truth is most clinics don't perform the basic functions they're meant to. Most health centres don't carry out regular health patrols. Right, only 25% do. Only a third have access to fuel. Right? Only a third are able to transfer patients. Again, these are the sort of thing that will mean that they won't get patients. And most health clinics lack basic amenities. Right? They're, they're very rough and ready outfits. Um, you know, only 40% have refrigeration right, to store uh, drugs. Right? Only 20% have beds with mattresses. These are not attractive places uh, to seek health care. Uh, like the uh, education sector, these buildings uh, are in a state of disrepair uh, due to a lack of maintenance. And uh, we'll see why the maintenance is being, isn't being done. Uh, they're, they're starved of funds. So again, we'll talk more about explanations later, but just a few um, indicators from health as to why things aren't working. You know, there's been a lot of emphasis on facility-level budgeting, that each clinic should develop a budget, submit the budget on the basis of that, will be funded. But that whole system is not really working. Right? Only about a quarter submit the budget, 20% get the budget approved, but then only 10% receive funding after their budget's approved. Right? Uh, more clinics receive user fees than external support. Right? In general, they are starved of external support. Right? It's 20% who get uh, funding from a budget. That's normally you know, through a cheque. 
uh, and then another 40% who get funding in kind. Right? They're, they're, so they're, their district office or their church agency builds something for them, fixes something, delivers something, uh, gives them fuel and so on. Uh, so there are 60% that receive external support, but uh, 83% that charge user fees. Now, our survey was done before the abolition of user fees. Right? You can't, you're not allowed to do this anymore. And um, so I'm sure that number's uh, gone down. And uh, you know, our view is that although our survey was before that reform, that reform must surely make you know, what's already a bad situation worse. Uh, if you look, this puts all that data together. So here are the 60% that get some sort of external support in kind or in cash. Uh, then you've got 30% who only get user fees, right? don't get any external support. And then another 10% or so who just who don't get anything. Right? They don't get any external support. They don't charge user fees. These are like ghost clinics. Right? They have no funding uh, beyond the staff uh, who may be retired staff you know, still hanging on because there's no one there. Uh, to, to replace them. So the picture that emerges is really of a sector where funds are not getting uh, to the front line. Uh, and then on governance, you know, the situation is, uh, not, uh, is, is, is just not as good as in education. The, there, there are no boards of management. Uh, that, that structure doesn't exist. There are these village health committees. They're like a, a PNC uh, committee. They, they're meant to provide user feedback and engagement. Um, but, you know, as again, school, where just about everyone has a, a PNC, about two-thirds have a village health committee. Um, if you ask the clinic who your supervisor is, only two-thirds can name their supervisor. Right? This is only 40%, you know, get a visit from their supervisor in the year, and about the same number get a visit from the doctor or a health extension office. So a lot of these uh, clinics seem to be sort of abandoned, right, left to their own uh, devices. So yes, for health, there's, you, know, you have to say, yes, it was a lost decade. And uh, that should give us pause. It should give uh, the government pause. Uh, it should uh, give uh, the Australian Aid Program pause because a lot of money has been invested into health. A lot of money has been invested into um, consultants and to plans, but clearly those plans have not translated into, into services. And I just uh, acknowledge you know, both departments of health and education have been very engaged in the survey, and in particular, health, you know, despite the negative findings, they've been uh, taking a very constructive attitude. They've welcomed this data. Uh, I think a, a lot of other people share these concerns about the premature abolition of health user fees in particular. All right, I know I'm running out of time. So let me go on to explanations. How do we explain uh, these results? And, uh, you know, not only the sectoral differences, the kind of the vibrant classroom versus the uh, abandoned health centre run by retired uh, staff. Uh, not only the sectoral differences, the differences across provinces that I haven't had time to go into, but where there clearly are major differences. And then, of course, the uh, you know, 360 facilities, the differences across facilities. And we have a chapter in the report of regression analysis. So statistical analysis trying to tease out uh, correlations between, uh, on the one hand, uh, performance variables, and on the other hand, things like finance uh, management agency, whether it's church-run or, um, or government. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to go into the details of the regressions. You can see that in the report, but I'm just going to go through our four, kind of, our, our four bottom lines um, that uh, Charles already mentioned. Uh, first, financing. Right, so if you look at this graph, it tells a lot of the story. This is, the, is non-salary operational support. Uh, to schools, the blue, and to health clinics, the orange, both church and government. 
And you can see both have increased over the decade, but of course schools with the massive subsidy payments have left health behind. So that itself tells you part of the story. But then, you know, it's not just the budget, it's also whether those funds get to uh, the front line. And in the case of schools, yes, they all get uh, these funds, but in health clinics, as I said, only about 60% get any external support at all. And you, know, you put those two things together and you see the magnitude of the facility funding is much higher for schools, you know, which frankly are much easier to run. <laughs> you don't need as much funding to run a school as you do to run a health clinic. So there's something very wrong here with uh, both the funding but also getting the funds uh, to the school. And the importance of funding is uh, brought out through our regression analysis for schools. Schools with more funding have better quality infrastructure and clinics with more revenue deliver more outputs. I mean, no surprises there. Second, governance. Uh, community engagement and official oversight uh, both uh, seem to matter. And as I mentioned, health clinics don't have a board of management. Uh, PNC committees are more widespread than the village health committees. They're more active, and schools are twice as likely to be supervised as health clinics. Uh, for the regression analysis, we can only run this for the schools because uh, you know, that there are no boards of management for the uh, health clinics. But schools where the board of management meets regularly and have more say perform better than those schools where it doesn't meet or is not regarded to have a lot of stake. Of course, you know, the, these uh, uh, regressions, uh, they, they, you always have to worry about causation, but I think uh, they, they, make, they confirm our, uh, our common sense. Number three, workforce. Uh, obviously, workforce is a function of governance and financing, but there are clearly some sector-specific issues that, that need to be addressed. And I've always already mentioned the difference in years in position where uh, you know, health officers stay for a lot longer because there's no one to replace them. So the whole issue of rejuvenation needs to be addressed in the health workforce. It's not really expanding the workforce, it's rejuvenating it. And then this issue of being paid a grade. Right? That's a problem that the uh, education sector has been able to resolve. Right? And now... You know, more than 80% of teachers think at least they are getting the right pay. They might still complain they're not getting their leave provisions, but at least they're getting the right pay. Whereas for health workers, and it's predominantly church health workers, only half think they're getting uh, paid what they should be. And obviously, if you're not being paid what you should be, you're not going to put in as much, as much effort. It's going to be a problem for morale. And then finally, uh, as Matt mentioned, we do find that church-run facilities perform better, uh, especially in the area of health, but also uh, in, the, in the area of schools. And uh, it doesn't always come out from the raw data, but when you go down to the regression analysis and control for other variables, uh, you do find that church-run clinics are more likely to have water access, they're more likely to run patrols, they're more able to transfer patients, they report their, their customers or their clients report fewer quality problems or funding problems, and the workers uh, are more likely to attend. And likewise, at uh, church-run schools, the, their parents are more likely to report that teachers teach, and therefore, we find, uh, uh, children are more likely to turn up to church-run schools. So when you look at it in more detail, there does seem to be a clear, a clear difference. Uh, all right, well, um, to, to wrap up now, uh, we, we have these ten findings in the report. I'm not going to go through them because I've mentioned uh, all of them, but I'll just highlight the first, I guess. The development progress in PNG is neither inevitable nor impossible. That might sound uh, you know, trite, but I think it's an important corrective uh, to you know the, the, the two views. You know, one is PNG is going through this transformation, everything's wonderful, and uh, second is that you know everything is we may as well give up. Uh, I think our, our report shows the importance of going out, actually finding the situation on the ground, and then uh, basing your analysis on that.
Uh, I'll turn to recommendations, and we have three sets of recommendations uh, on health, education, and then more generally for service delivery. Uh, for health, I think urgent need to get more resources to clinics. Uh, this is one area we need to do more research. How do you get those resources to clinics? Most of them don't have bank accounts. Uh, is that the way to go, or should it be through uh, more in-kind support? But there are some pilots underway, and we need to uh, go and do some evaluation. Uh, clearly, the governance and supervision of these health centres needs to be strengthened. And uh, we do make the suggestion, you've got, you've got these boards of management for schools, uh, why not have boards of management, at least for the larger uh, health centres, maybe not for the aid post, but for the larger health centres. Indeed, why not ask existing school board of management, boards of management to also take on this responsibility of running their local health centre? Uh, in the uh, health sector, you need to address workforce issues, as I said, resolve pay disputes and regenerate the workforce. And then finally, we make the point, you know, that the, it can seem a very daunting reform agenda. There are so many problems that need to be fixed in the health centre sector, and you need to reverse a declining trajectory. Uh, and we do suggest to focus reform efforts on the larger district-level facilities, right? Get them working better first, uh, and then turn your attention to smaller uh, clinics and aid posts. Uh, in terms of primary education... Um, you know, clearly there is progress, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. We note that the budget for supervision has fallen over the last decade, and with more, bigger, better resource schools, you need more supervision. Uh, boards of management, you know, we want to look more in our next stage of case studies into you know, what exactly their role is, but one area we've already, already identified is that while they're seen as having a big role in financial management, they often don't have access to financial records, especially after the head teacher leaves, and uh, he or she takes those records uh, with him or her. Not that that ever happens in the Australian public sector. Um, more teachers need to be hired. Right? That, that's the schools have expanded, but uh, they need to uh, expand further. And indeed, you know, most school systems around the world, the complaint is there's too much of the uh, budgets going to salaries. Right? PNG is the other way around. Right? It has, by international standards, a very low share of the budget going to salaries because of these very generous school subsidy payments. And uh, it is a very tight budget situation now, um, but uh, perhaps there's some scope to retarget those subsidies and uh, free up some room for hiring of teachers. Uh, and then finally, we mentioned this uh, risk that that subsidy bill could be inflated because uh, you're going on the basis of enrolments and uh, it's very hard to verify the number of kids being enrolled. So I think some more supervision could reduce the number of uh, enrolments and that would also help free up some funding. Uh, finally, on service delivery more generally, I've got a whole chapter in the report on DSIP. I haven't been able to go into that, but DSIP, you know, that's the MP funding as it goes to health and education. And uh, I mean, I think one recommendation we make from that is that if you're going to persist with DSIP, as clearly the government is, in fact, they've increased it in this budget, uh, there needs to be much more attention given to quality. For example, in the health sector, we found that half of the projects launched under DSIP are judged by the officer in charge as unlikely ever to be completed. Right? So they've begun, but then the funding runs out and they're half finished, uh, not useful. Uh, underfunding and maintenance at both the national level, we've been trying to boost funding uh, for maintenance, uh, the recurrent budget, um, and, uh, but then that funding has to get to the facility level. Uh, we thought a lot more used to be made of public information at the local level. If you are giving a lot of funds direct to facilities, which is a good idea in general, you need to set up systems so that people know what, that, what those funds are being, set, uh, are being established to do. I think clearly, if uh, in general the church-run facilities are doing better, you, that's a good basis for expanding 
those partnerships uh, that the government has. You know, the government's a major provide, major funder of church education and health services, but uh, it can, do, it has those mechanisms in place. They can be improved and expanded. And finally, as the High Commissioner kindly endorsed, you know, I think PNG does have a, a an asset now. There are many countries where there's been an expenditure tracking survey, but there are very few. I think there are only two or three where it's been where you have this panel. And so PNG does now have this very valuable asset. And uh, clearly, we think it's a, it's a worthwhile endeavour and, and we hope this survey will be repeated and we won't have to wait. You know, perhaps waiting 10 years is, is a, bit, uh, a bit too long. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, that's our uh, steering committee um, at NRI. There are too many people who've been involved in this project to thank them all. But uh, we do uh, look forward to your questions today, but also your participation um, you know, as we go forward. And I'd be happy to talk about uh, our plans for future uh, research. Thank you. Mm, thank you, Stephen. Uh, Thomas, now you have the easy task of giving us the perspective from Port Moresby and PNG. So would you mind uh, coming up and telling us what you think? Thank you, Margaret. Uh, Stephen has done the hard yards, and I'll just wrap up and say a few general comments and remarks to those of you. But first of all, uh, Matt Kimberley, thank you for coming in, and he acknowledges the support that DFAT has given to this study and also the ongoing study between the NRI and various institutions in Australia. Uh, Charles Lepani for launching the report, and everyone here, I see a lot of familiar faces. Uh, the National Research Institute and, and uh, the ANU have had this special relationship going back uh, into the 1960s. I mean, the National Research Institute was set up as the New Guinea Research Un uh, uh, Unit. Uh, and, and so uh, we've, and at the time of independence, it was handed over to, to the PNG government to set up the Institute of Applied Social and Economic Research as an independence gift. And, and so it started off as one of the first institutions that uh, got transferred by uh, the Australian government or the, an agency of the Australian people to, uh, to the people of Papua New Guinea, and we've maintained and continued that relationship, and I see a lot of you here, you know, the, you've been associated with uh, the National Research Institute in one way or another, and uh, it's good to see you all, and thank you for continued support to the work of the National Research Institute and the relationship that we have maintained over this time. Uh, I know uh, our research interests uh, change, and, and so... Uh, people have moved on and uh, the younger ones have come and uh, started off in the areas that they have, uh, have an interest in. And also on the institute side, the National Research Institute has also gone through a period of transformation over the last couple of years and we've moved from a lot of the research divisions that we had before and uh, the council has sort of refocused the institute now on uh, program areas. The, you know, the work of the institute is now focused on policy issues that affecting the development of Papua New Guinea. And so uh, we focus now on public policy research rather than the general research that we used to do before. And a lot of you were involved. And so uh, selectively now we're engaging with uh, Australian institutions and, 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 and trying to get the uh, capacity of Australian institutions to focus on particular areas of, of development issues affecting PNG and helping government to understand those areas. And so we've started this reform and uh, the Development Policy Centre is one of those uh, institutions or uh, centres here that we've associated in looking at the public uh, expenditure and then uh, looking at 
how our budget's being implemented and how are they delivering the results that we expect to see. And, and so Stephen and the team have been uh, quite involved in this paper project, trying to understand how it's translating at the service delivery center, and this uh, report is one of those. But we hope to continue, and it's uh, actually generated a lot more questions than and the answers, and we hope to now go down into the details and say, well, why is it happening the way it is, and, and also trying to explain uh, and help uh, the bureaucrats and the politicians understand some of the dynamics behind what we, we see is uh, emerging from the findings of the study. And so we hope that that uh, relationship will continue. Um, it's also interesting that uh, you know we had our young researchers, Tony and the team, they travel out to some of the most difficult areas in PNG as part of going out and collecting the data. And really that exposure, I think, helped them to understand the, the environment within which service is being delivered. Uh, but also uh, a special uh, attachment to PNG uh, and the PNG's work, and I'm hoping that they will continue to work on and supporting PNG research and, and working in close collaboration with, uh, with PNG researchers. Uh, many of you from the older generation, uh, Ron and a few, uh, you know, you've, you've all worked with the NRI and, and, and with researchers, and you've continued that relationship with, uh, with the Institute, but you're not going to be there for some time, and some of the people who worked with the Institute before have also moved on, uh, and I think the younger generation have stepped up to it, and it's really good to see the younger researchers being involved in Papua New Guinea and, 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 and continuing that role. And, so I want to encourage that. And, and also, I think it's important to re realize that uh, institutions matter, but uh, it's the people that matter. Uh, the, you, know, you, you work with colleagues, Australian researchers go and work in collaboration with Papua New Guinea researchers, and you develop areas of interest, and you, you work together on those areas. And, and that's the partnership that we need to encourage. You know, sort of, uh, yes, the ANU or the UNSW or University of Queensland, we can have those institutional arrangements, but who are the people who are actually engaged in those research activities and how well do they work together to understand the issues and contribute to the debate and discussions? And I guess that's this ongoing relationship that we need to build between the National Research Institute, between the University of Papua New Guinea Research and the Australian institutions. And, and so it's good to see, as I said, in, in the younger generation coming up and developing that special focus, uh, continuing that focus on, on PNG. I know uh, China and Indonesia and so on are becoming more increasingly interesting areas for uh, study at the universities in, in Australian institutions. It certainly yes, It's an area that uh, many of, uh, you know, they think that you know, Australia is certainly trying to understand how the economic uh, play in, in Indonesia and China and so on will benefit Australia and uh, they want to be engaged in it. But I think also Papua New Guinea has got a special you know, place in the Australian academic community. Uh, PNG is part of the family. Whatever happens in PNG will affect Australia. Whatever happens in Australia will affect PNG. And I think together we need to understand what's happening uh, in our countries and help to resolve the issues as they play out. Uh, TB in Daru will certainly flow over into Australia if it spreads out in a way. Uh, ec economic underdevelopment in, in PNG will always affect Australia and then, you know, that way. So it's in our mutual interest to work together and try to understand some of the issues and help. And, and, and so research is very limited in Papua New Guinea. We try to promote it at the National Research Institute. Our universities are struggling. And I know the Australian universities are also struggling. And that's where the PNG government and the Australian government need to put a lot more money into research and help uh, the governments and the people to understand what are the issues that are affecting underdevelopment and help to make more informed policy decisions and, and, and so that we turn 
the, uh, the underdeveloped status of PNG around so that it becomes a more robust economy of, uh, and improve the lives of people so that then uh, what, what happens in PNG as the situation improves in PNG, Australia benefits and, and we also benefit from the relationship. And so I think our relationship is of mutual benefit and that's why we need to continue to argue to our governments, both the PNG governments and the Australian government to, to continue supporting research. I see it's emerging. Uh, this year we got uh, additional funding from DFAT uh, to the National Research Institute to selectively engage with Australian institutions as partner institutions. And I'm sure that uh, over the design phase in 2016, when the program rolls out, we will, may have more uh, other areas of work that we might uh, identify and engage with. But I'm also happy that the, the DFAT is also supporting uh, the University of Papua New Guinea uh, where the National Research Institute is policy, uh, focusing on policy work, uh, we also need the general research that will inform the policy work. And, and so we need a lot more research, and, and the University of Papua New Guinea, University of Goroka, they also need to have uh, research work done there. And, and particularly where leadership is failing, we need the Australian institutions to support that, and I hope that we can have some support in the areas of research going forward. Uh, we. The way the research focus has gone and the Development Policy Centre research, particularly on the PEPE project, very pleased to see that uh, the way we did the work was not only to produce the work but engage with the people on the, at the institutional level and what was the data telling us and what they needed to do. So uh, I saw a lot of people from the health sector, the health department and the education department. Uh, our team went and talked to them. They presented the results. We had uh, various discussions. And they were very keen on using the data to inform the, the discussions ongoing within their own organizations and their dealings with Treasury about what they wanted to do, or how much resources, or how they wanted to reorganize their resources. So the research data was very useful to those agencies that, uh, that use that data. And it's, it's very useful in our organizations where research data is very limited, and, and it helped them. But also in terms of the way the team uh, used and, and the data, they presented it in, in easy to understand forms so that then the users were able to use it very clearly rather than having big volumes of research reports. Uh, we, we have the big report that, but we also produce little volumes of what we call the, the spotlight article and other bits and pieces that they were able to use it in the policy dialogue work and I think that policy dialogue work is important, very important in terms of uh, policy research. We do a bit piece of work but we also use the findings in, in, in advancing policy debate and discussions in bits and you know biteable chunks, and and I, I you know I think the lessons from the Pepe work is useful, and we will, I hope that we will continue that, and and for other researchers who are going to engage in this work to to continue that format, you know, do the research work, but also engage in the policy debate and discussions with the people who who are going to use it. Uh, interestingly, the last two weeks I was told that on the floor of Parliament uh, and the members of the opposition and some members in the middle benches there were asking some very you know, troubling questions to the government side and, and the finance minister, James Marabe, got up and said, where are you getting all this data from? <laughs> and so uh, they, they got up the way the NRI report and, the, and the, this report and said, from this. So uh, it's, it's becoming very useful in very different ways uh, for members of parliament on the floor of parliament asking those questions, using the report as evidence to say, look, this is evidence that you, you can't discount. Uh, and, and so it's, it's those sort of reports and, and that we can make inroads into improving policy and practice. As we move on to the, the resource boom, I, I guess, as uh, Charles Lepin said, we, we hear it everywhere and I think we're getting tired of it. 
But I think uh, it's really important to engage at this point in time in terms of uh, what do we do with this uh, revenues? If, and, and, and if if the revenues don't come, we still have uh, funds. The, uh, the budget has increased about 16 billion this year. Uh, and so, what what will the government do with that money, and how effective will they do um, in deliver uh, projects and activities that will then lead to a sustained economic or broad-based economic growth into the future? That will be sustainable economic growth rather than just the resource boom. After 30 years or 40 years, when the resources run out, then we need to have. A, uh, sustainable uh, economic uh, drivers that continue to support the, the services and, and the other economic activities that PNG continues. So what are the areas that we need to invest now so that it will generate that return later on? And that will be something that is a challenge to the Dev policy team. We've had a talk this morning. I think we need to continue that re research and, and, and get some focus on where are the traction areas that we need to do. And I guess that's also from the other di different disciplines that I see it represented broadly here. We need to sort of continue the debate discussions. What are the institutional strengthening arrangements? What are the intervention areas that will help to deliver a broad-based economic growth that will then help to have improved health and education services and improve the income levels of people so that then we have a better society in PNG? And uh, I hope that uh, our sort of academic community will, both from the Australian and the PNG side, will. Uh, be able to contribute more to that uh, and, and so that our governments can have better informed policy, both on the PNG side as well as the Australian aid component, which is a sizable amount of money, uh, make more informed uh, intervention, uh, intervention programs at that level so that we can see those benefits coming up. But thank you all for coming and, and giving the endorsement to the launching of our report and thank you to the team, the, the policy center and the, those behind uh, the scenes. I know the team went to Port Mosby and we were meeting there, but I know there's a whole lot of team behind the team too. So thank you very much and good afternoon. Okay, thanks Thomas. Can I ask the members of the panel to come back to the table and we'll have um, time now for some um, interaction with the audience. Yeah, I might take um, two or three questions at a time so that we can do question time relatively efficiently. So, can I have an indication of questions people would like to ask? Yes, please. Yes. Uh, my question is Charles and Stephen. Um, you mentioned very uh, highlighted in your opening uh, remarks about building more schools in Papua New Guinea and hiring more teachers, but the quality is not improving. Um, and most schools, as, Ch as Charles pointed out, don't even have textbooks. Um, currently, I'm working on Bogenville, and um, I'm assisting James Tanish to all our Kindles in the school. Each Kindle costs $99 and holds up to 1,400 books. But we have a 365 um, schools on Bogenville, and very few of them only have a handful of books per school. Do you both see technology playing a role in the rollout of uh, textbooks and resources in schools in Papua New Guinea? And just based on the fact that most communities now have mobile phones, we don't have textbooks. Okay. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the presentation. Obviously, it wasn't time to sort of disaggregate and, and top up different parts of Papua New Guinea in different provinces. But I was wondering if there was anything that stood out in, in, your, uh, in your study um, that caused surprise in terms of um, perhaps things working much better in 
uh, places where you hadn't anticipated or where in the past things hadn't worked so well. There were only patterns of living that, that really stood out that you might wish to share with your Okay, and Colin, any questions? Uh, yes, um, considering the recent UNDP Human Development Report that was launched last month, I wonder how you might think of linking these findings and these trends with trends in some of the more contentious uh, MDG indicators that people argue about all the time because they can't work out how to measure them, like maternal mortality rate or literacy rate, for example. Um, how would you go about trying to use these findings to reflect on those things or link those things to these findings? Okay, that sounds like a good starting set of questions. Um, who'd like to lead off? Well, I could take questions on the report and then others can add uh, reflections. Uh, in terms of uh, textbooks, so yeah, we did. Actually, we had uh, quite a detailed uh, module on textbooks, and um, which I'm just looking for, but it finds that uh, you know, textbooks, uh, we've gone from about 1.5. Uh, uh, we looked at English and maths, and we looked at uh, grades 5 and 6, and uh, we've gone from a situation of uh, 1.5, about 1.5, uh, students per textbook in either one of those grades, or on average, right, across grades and subjects, to two. So, you know, that's... Uh, but there are more textbooks, right, but the number of students has gone up by even even more. So I wouldn't say it's situation... I mean, of course, this is a national average, right, but on it, for the national level, it's not that there's a drought of textbooks. And uh, that's, you know, not surprising because there had been a major program of uh, support by the Australian Aid Program and the European Union to distribute textbooks. Now, that's finished, um, as the High Commissioner mentioned, as a sort of policy decision, and you can debate the merits of that. I think the good news is that schools have a lot more cash because of these big subsidy payments, and so in many cases they'll be able to go out and buy textbooks uh, themselves. Um, but I think it's definitely an area to, to watch. I mean, that's all on textbooks. That's without going into your, um, you know, your comment is can there be a technological solution? And, I mean, I don't think our survey uh, really speaks to that, to be honest, but we are on the lookout for future research for opportunities to evaluate reforms. Because... No, sure, yeah. And, uh, and there, there's been some work under the uh, EPSP to send teachers... Uh, class plans by text message and that's been evaluated and found to have a positive impact on learning outcomes. So those kind of experiments can be done, evaluations can be made, so we'd be interested to talk to you more about what you're doing and can we uh, evaluate it. On uh, geographical patterns, I mean I think uh, others from other team members, I invite them to contribute. I think you know we found East New Britain was sort of a standout uh, performer, not so much an expansion of the school sector. That was really across the board, uh, and a lot of the, uh, you know, backward or, or remoter areas because it was so bad. You know, they were able to show more improvement in terms of uh, catching up. But certainly in health, uh, East New Britain was the standout, and you know, by no means uh, you couldn't say like I wouldn't even say got a pass grade, but compared to the others, did much better, and certainly did better at getting uh, fund or getting resources to facilities. And we want to go back to East New Britain and see how they're doing that. Because it obviously is a bottleneck, right? Funding has gone up to the provinces, but that funding doesn't seem... It's either not enough or it's not getting through to the clinics. So we need to examine that in much more, much more detail. 
But yeah, I encourage others to talk more about the geographical differences. And on the MDGs, Colin, I mean, yeah, we, this is not a study of outcomes, so we didn't do any learning tests. We didn't go and measure. You'd have to take this, you know, here are, you know, focuses on the facilities. You'd have to have a focus on individuals and households to come at those uh, issues. And as you they are, they're, they're more difficult to monitor but in, in some cases, but they should obviously be, you should do both. Right? I, I think this kind of information is also critical. Right? If you're running a health system or running an education system, you need to know, you know how many teachers are there, are they turning up, uh, what's the state of the school buildings. So these are more about inputs, in some cases outputs, and it should complement uh, the, the collection at the household level on, on outcomes. Does anyone else want to comment on any of those issues? you uh, mentioned my name, I'll just... Um, um, <clears throat> the finance and banking sector have done a great job with mobile phones, uh, money, money talks of course, and books also can talk, how the two can be uh, progressed and relate and develop uh, in the future, that should be a good point. Uh, on um, the issue of what sticks out um, in the study, I, I'm also I have a question to ask uh, Stephen and his team. And Doctor, have you come across with particularly the health sector issues um, of delivery, the provincial national uh, functions and powers? Um, that has always been trotted out as uh, one of the key uh, stumbling blocks in the delivery issue. Uh, did any local or national health department people raise that? Did that stick out in your study? The, an issue. the relationship between national... Yeah, the funding, and delivery, because uh, uh, the government, uh, provincial government has delivery funding for mm. health. National government doesn't interfere with health uh, uh, decisions mm. and, and also funding. Mm -hmm. It only funds the um, national health services. Mm. So what, what's the issue there? Can, can provincial governments be forced or national oh, governments? Yeah, so that's very much uh, where we're at in the research. You know, with uh, education, you've got a model of facility funding. The funds go direct from the national department to the schools. And uh, that's well supported by a system of local uh, community oversight with these boards of management, you know, which is a, a reform that was introduced you know, more than 10 years ago. It's been supported by the aid program you know, where they, they've hired NGOs to work with the boards of management to strengthen their role. So I think that's a, that's a successful uh, model. Of course, it needs further investigation, but comes out as successful. In the case of health, it's, it's the indirect route, right? So the funds go from the national government to the provincial government, and then the provincial government's meant to pass them on either the local government or, or to the health clinics, and that doesn't seem to be working. Right? Now, yeah, so is the answer for the... Uh, health sector to follow, uh, go to this direct funding model. You know, that sort of stands out as kind of the obvious thing, but, you know, the health... And, and it's being piloted in Bougainville now. But uh, may or may not uh, be appropriate. So I think that we know the problem, but we need to do more research to before you can confidently say that this model of direct funding should also be applied to uh, the health centre, health centres. And just also, just sorry to go on, but one thing you reminded me of, you know, for mobile, for technology... It's not just um, teaching, it's also in terms of pay. If you can work out better systems of mobile pay, uh, I think that will help teachers a lot. We found out that on average it takes 17 hours to access uh, pay 
and you know, 32 hours in Morabe, right? So, and uh, in in Sandown, 500 kina just to go and get your pay, right? So if you can reduce those costs, uh, obviously you'll be uh, making teachers better off and making them more productive. Did you want to comment on this? Yeah, to one in relation to uh, what Charles is saying in terms of financing, if subsequent discussions with the health department, they actually wanted the education sector is better off because they have this fee subsidy which is front-loaded, meaning that Treasury releases the money up front in January or February so that the schools get the money. Whereas the health facility grants are sort of released at whenever money is being made available and so health departments say, well the churches they say that we, we, we're not getting our grants and so they still complain and, and so the uh, health department people said, look, we don't get the money, the Treasury does not allow us to receive to release the money, so there are some cash flow problems that they need to manage within the health department, not related to the national provincial government relationship, but uh, really to cash flow management and budget implementation. And in relation to Colin, the, uh, the MDG is, we, our focus was not on this one, but we have another project in the pipeline which I would like to work on in terms of the MDG, I think. We did an earlier report in uh, 2010 on the provincial and, and district uh, performance report saying where is health, education and so on. Uh, I think the MDG indicators are quite complex, they are for international audiences, but we need more robust uh, indicators for our, and, and indicators that have meaning for our people in the districts. Uh, district offices need to know what, it, what is an enrollment rate and, and what, it does, uh, what, it, what it takes to increase the enrollment rate so that they can then work at that level to increase enrollments and reach an acceptable enrollment rate. Uh, when we have those MDG goals and, and so on, it doesn't mean anything to them. So what we would like to do at the Institute is next year, we, we, uh, and if we can get the team together, is really focus on trying to produce some district performance reports, uh, two or three key indicators in education, two or three indicators in health, and some, in some uh, using some proxy measures for economic data, and, and, and then release those reports on a regular basis so that districts can be challenged to improve on those indicators. And in doing so, then they can contribute to the achievement of MDG goals yeah, as a broader sort of target. Can I just ask, does anyone want to comment on the issue of geographic patterns? Colin, did you have any comments on that? Uh, I might say, it's saying quickly, I mean, it's more, you know, health, for example, is a decentralised function. So it's really up to the province to, you know, carry out those functions and they have the accountability. So it's not regional. So, for instance, like Eastern Britain performs well, Western Britain does not perform as well. So it's really up to the provinces to manage their service delivery systems. Like, for example, 85% of clinics in Eastern Britain prepare budgets, where it's less than 10% in you know, the provinces in the islands. So can I just add yeah. to that in the education sector? So in Eastern Britain um, performed very well, as you'd expect. Golf performed very badly on a number of on a number of indicators. But both of those provinces face somewhat similar challenges over the decade. We looked at how long it took to get from um, schools to um, key facilities, and to get to a bank, get to an airport, to get to a trade center. Both of those um, those provinces took a, a similar amount of time and increased over the decade. So one of the things that we want to do um, in the next phase is to go back to those provinces and understand what's happening, why has Eastern Britain seemed to have managed those challenges where it's golf. Okay, thanks. Okay, we have some more questions over here. Um, Anthony and then Satish, please. Yeah, um, you mentioned um, the relationship between population growth 
in education and suggested that education outcomes were keep getting ahead of population growth, uh, but health not. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that. And also, if possible, I notice your MCD was one of your eight problems. And you're also dealing with Morrowind. Clay and Port Moresby, the population growth is presumably a, a way ahead of, of the rest of the country. Uh, whether there's anything in particular coming through about how the big cities are managing the health and education I guess the caution I would have is that we in two snapshots of time, 2002 and 2012, and we're drawing inferences about trends. Uh, that assumes that these two are sort of normal years. But that aside, the one generalization that I drew from the presentation that you made, um, and this is something that the director and Stephen both can probably answer, is that the church seems to do better on all of your measures vis-a-vis <coughs> the government. So the question I have for you is why? And to make it a bit more um, specific, uh, there could be three possible reasons why churches do better than government, one of which may be because they have more resources, two, because they have better governance, three, because there's selection issue, in that you know, they serve better regions or they draw better people, better teachers, and so on. I just want to know which, the answer may be all three, but I just want to know what are the priorities. I draw the director in because the director has some experience on delivering so far as churches and the government sector is concerned. Mm. Okay, and there's also a question. It's a really good question. I'm not sure very much. There's more competition. Um, uh, Can I actually try to say? Okay. Sorry. Sorry, could you? I was distracted. Sorry. Uh, uh, um, uh, is there more competition from sort of the private sector? Okay, right. Okay, right, there's those three questions. So, okay. um, did you I think I'll, I'll, I'll let Thomas answer the one about the churches. Yeah. I could mm-hmm. take the other ones. Do you want to do that one first? Yeah, it's uh, sort of the churches. Are, so there's a, it's more anecdotal than any research uh, evidence or research-based uh, uh, information, but Churches, from what the outcomes are, certainly clearly the churches deliver better there, and then so we really don't know what it is. I don't think it's finances. I don't think they have access to finances. I think it's things other than finances, and they're probably better motivated to do what they do, and then so that might be a factor there that we probably need to understand. Uh, having said that, I, I think to draw on that and to say that we put more money and support to churches also is is, is a misnomer. I think in, in organizational management you can do two things to a certain level and then beyond that you can then become inefficient as well. And I, in some discussions with churches and so on, they, they're struggling also to try and deliver that, and particularly the ones that I am associated closely with. Uh, so despite the fact that they're getting funding but they can't find the people, the sort of volunteers that used to go and work in those, within those church institutions are no longer there. And so they're relying on fewer volunteers to deliver the services. And so they're also struggling in terms of capacity. So 
uh, while it, the evidence is there, drawing on that and saying we, let's support the churches and, and so it, we need to be a bit more in it. And, and, uh, I'm not taking anything away from what Matt said in terms of supporting the, the uh, church-run health boards. They're, they're actually doing some <coughs> wonderful work there, and that, but it's just the existing sort of services that they are providing. And I know the other aspect of it, that they can also run into conflict with the all, overall governance arrangements, with the district uh, arrangements, and, and, they, and, and so it, we need to examine that a bit more closely before we can draw on the conclusions of why churches are running better services and trying to offload responsibilities to the churches. Okay, on the other uh, points made on um, population growth I, and big cities, I guess in just the simple point is, you know, you've had population growth roughly around 30%. Uh, enrollment in schools has grown by 80%. Now, maybe that's inflated somewhat, so actual attendance might be 60 or 70%, but significantly above uh, population growth. Uh, whereas for health clinics, um, you know, we our two questions we asked, you know, how many came yesterday, how many came on a typical day, no increase, you know, versus a 30% increase in the population. So that's the stark difference. Uh, for, for big cities, uh, it's not so much you find a higher uh, enrolment growth because that depends on the base. And, you know, in, in NCD, you already had a higher enrolment, right, back in 2002. So there's only so, you can only grow so fast compared to somewhere like golf where, where you, there were far more kids out of school to get into school. So you don't see the differences as much in enrolment growth despite faster population growth. It's just these schools are really big. So in NCD now, the average primary school, there's 1,000 students. 1,000 right? students is huge. I think in ACT, it's about 200, 250. So um, these are enormous schools and uh, classrooms. I mean, I gave that example of golf with 80 uh, because it was so striking, but on average, it's NCD that has largest class sizes, and uh, I've got the number here, and it's uh, about 70, yeah, 75 students per functioning classroom. So take out the classrooms that are in a state of uh, disrepair and falling down, 75 students. So that issue of overcrowding and needing more funding for an expanding system is most acute uh, in NCD. Um, and uh, competition, yeah, private sector, it's a Good question. I mean, we, we surveyed everyone, right? We, we just, uh, you know, r randomly selected uh, clinics uh, based on uh, the schools. So we, we searched within a, an, an hour's radius for any health clinic. And we did find some private ones, and they're here. But it's a pretty small number. And so I don't think it explains... Uh, the, it's not like people are moving away from the um, government system to the private system. They may be moving more to the hospitals, Right, because they don't trust the primary health system. So they, even though it's a long distance, they go to the hospital, but it's not a private sector phenomenon. Can I make one more point? On what Grant said was very interesting. I, I, didn't even, uh, <laughs> I didn't even get to mention that, but on remoteness, you know, we find actually on average remoteness increases over the decade. So even if our facilities are doing better, on, you know, in some areas they're better connected, a mobile phone, but on air, average, like taking into account airstrips and roads, on average they're, they're more remote. So that is a major challenge, uh, a broader infrastructure challenge uh, for the country. Okay, are there more questions? Okay, thank you. And I have a question as well. So, okay, one, two, three, and then four this time around. I just wanted to ask about the, the two workforces, teacher and health workforces. So they kind of compare sort of almost like for like, and in fact, is it not true that that uh, sort of structurally, um, I mean, health workers by and large have to be better educated. So the pool from which you draw all the health workers kind of you have to move up the sort of 
you know, these sort of uh, the qualifications for those that enter that workforce. And if I understand Papua New government is also trying to move up the standards. So, so, so incentives become kind of a fairly important area to kind of look at. So does the report or just part of the future work that kind of looks at how you kind of create the incentives right, given that by and large your health workforce has to be better educated and therefore the pool of people becomes much more sort of constrained? Mm -hmm. And sorry, I've lost my place there. Yes, please. Mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to make a, a comment about um, competition in health. And uh, I, I very much see the competition in health as being um, not so much between the public and the private sector as between the biomedical sector and the superstitious sector. And the contest of values, uh, you know, the efflorescence of sorcery accusations, Pentecostal um, faith healers. There's a, there's a whole lot of um, supernatural explanations of injury and illness and, and ill health that I think are competing with biomedical services and, and the biomedical model and understanding of illness and injury. And so it concerns me um, that churches are in some ways seen as offering better options for delivery because churches also have supernatural ideas about healing and often very... Um, um, regressive and repressive um, attitudes to gender and health. Um, but, but I do think that the decline of medical services in Melanesia uh, maps onto the efflorescence of superstitious ways of understanding um, illness and, and, uh, and injury. Okay, so well, that's an interesting regression um, <laughs> challenge, isn't it? I don't those two years, please. Um, most of what I see here on education is, is to do with community schools and, and very little to do with, with secondary schools and, and yet people in, in the university sector keep on saying that the quality of people coming out of high schools, uh, especially since the closure of the national high schools, um, is, is a huge problem. So when, the quality of people that you're going to have the school teachers and public servants and so on is affected. So, um, did you get much on this? And one of the issues has been that most, most aid money has gone into uh, primary schools over the years. Uh, and I have another, another question. Um, web access is, is very expensive and very limited in Papua New Guinea. So, I just wonder how many copies of this. 180-page document have been made available in TNG. Will they get out to every district and every uh, tertiary institution and, and so on? Will they be made available so that the public has that, that access and transparency that you mentioned? Okay, can I ask Robin as a finisher? Um, for Matt, this question is... Um, does this report raise issues that you want to consider in the evaluation of the aid program, both its focus areas and its successes and failures in the past? Okay, okay. let you think about that. Do you want to respond? Uh, let me respond to Bill's uh, question about the, the education and uh, yeah, it's it's 
think the focus was basically on the primary education, repeating what had been done in 2002 and trying to see the changes. And so that was the focus. And so secondary schools were not included. So I hope that uh, at some other states we can look at the secondary schools. So it's not included. In terms of distribution, uh, we the, this report and this it's a thick document. It's quite expensive to to print it, uh, but we did deliver uh, to all the members of parliament and all the uh, secretaries of the departments, and, and so there's on our standard distribution list. Uh, but the for the public, we're reprinting and we're going to put it on our in the bookshop. But we posted it on our websites at the Deaf Policy Center and as well as the NRI. So they are available on our websites for us. So that's how we. Did. But the ones that we print, we have it in a bookshop, and then there are some book uh, shops that we have uh, agreements with to resell the NRI products, and they'll be sold, hopefully. And that's as far as we can go in terms of trying to get it out to the wider public. Yeah. I wonder if DPAC can subsidize a few more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do have uh, shorter versions. This is the uh, five-day test version. We have the, uh, the one-day and the 2020 version uh, as well. Get out. Um, so, on the uh, health workforce, uh, yes, uh, and in fact, Ian Morris is here, I think, with, um, did it, there's been a big health work report, you know, you know the big health work, workforce report that AusAid and the World Bank did, and uh, yeah, I'm sure it's more complex to train a uh, health uh, sector, a set of health sector professionals, um, and there are any number of problems, and we don't go into detail, but there are some clear things that can be addressed. I mean, if you don't pay your workers at grade, you know, they, they may not turn up, right? They're more likely to leave. And uh, education had that problem 10 years ago, and they've more or less solved it. Uh, the health sector could clearly solve that problem uh, if uh, funding was made available. And, uh, I mean, reforms, are, improvements are possible. That's what the education study shows. So, yeah, we shouldn't have the attitude it's all too hard. Uh, it's not going to succeed. In terms of the superstitious sector, I mean, I would, uh, I'm not an expert in that area, but I would imagine if your health sector is not working, you would look for alternatives. I might imagine the causality would run that way. Um, yes, and on the yeah, that's. Oh no, I don't know. Yes, it's for you. Um, for me, I think um, what this certainly does for us is uh, reaffirms our focus that we've after consultations with many people that are in this room and and uh, and elsewhere that continuing to face around education and health. Um, remains uh, key priorities and will for the foreseeable future. Um, the issues, though, for us are increasingly about the quality um, rather than the direct service delivery. Um, and that in making that comment, um, we recognise that this isn't... You don't want to uh, stop tomorrow. Um, it needs to be, in some places, a gradual withdrawal, and there will be some exceptions to the rule, particularly in some of the very remote and very difficult places, um, a number of the provinces of which have been the subject of this. So the data that comes forward, particularly health probably more than education, um, for us will be very helpful. Um, uh, Gulf, Gulf uh, uh, although not, not Western, but, but in this sense the, the data from Gulf therefore is very, uh, it will be very of great use to us um, in just making sure that where, we're, where we are investing Australian aid money um, is, uh, is most effective. I think the thing that's important for people to note is that while we continue to have a very large program, um, indeed uh, almost the largest, be uh, outside Indonesia, that we are tracking towards have representing something like less than 5% of expenditure 
um, in Papua New Guinea. So therefore the choices that we make and where we invest money need to be leveraging um, those the money that is the Papua New Guinean government and this gets to the heart of what Stephen's just said that if health uh, sorry if education made choices 10 years ago and very clearly has made has made gains then the choices that are being made right now by the Papua New Guinea government on where they invest money in health and other sectors is absolutely key so it's I think it's less for us to take on board some of this but it's for us to support our colleagues in Papua New Guinea to make sure that the choices that they make are are the right ones and that, that where we then invest leverages that and that our investment is catalytic rather than uh, a replacement or a substitution. Um, but uh, I think it's, uh, as I said at the start, it's, uh, it's very timely. I would agree with Stephen that 10 years would be to be too long between uh, surveys. So I think this needs to be some thought about um, how often and, uh, and how we might actually support that because that's the sort of catalytic investment that can then help make those choices and uh, get those stronger data sets. Thomas, no just a, a point just to echo what uh, Stephen and Matt are saying in terms of the lessons learned from between the health and then uh, education and transferring to the health sector. In the discussions that the program, that the research program committee, where the health sector people were involved in the discussions and the education sector, as the findings were being revealed, the health sector really benefited from that because they said, oh, this is what worked in education. And how did you do that? And so they didn't, I sort of suspect that they didn't have the opportunity for that sort of discussions. And our research work facilitated, so they benefited a lot more. And I'm hoping that they will now take on those lessons and, and try to introduce those within the health sector and, and benefit from the, the reforms that education has advanced. Okay, thank you very much to all the panellists. I think it's been a really fascinating and rich discussion today. Um, thank you all for coming and um, we look forward to 2015 and what the Development Policy Centre has to offer next year. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.